Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Malachi once again. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. We've been in Malachi now. I believe this is the fourth sermon, fifth sermon in Malachi. Lord willing, we will conclude on Christmas morning, the book of Malachi. Christmas morning with a beautiful messianic promise. That's how Malachi concludes. What a day to do it too, Christmas morning. Well, let's ask God to help us this morning. Once again, as we look at his holy word. Father, this is your word given by your spirit through the messenger, Malachi. Lord, would you be glorified by it? Fill me with your spirit that I might accurately proclaim the truths of this passage and its context. And Lord, would you apply it to our hearts in the areas in which we need to repent, to be transformed, to know you more. And Lord, I pray that you would magnify the Lord Jesus before us once again this morning, for it's all about him. In his precious name we pray, amen. Last week we saw in the beginning of Malachi chapter 2 how God has issued judgment against the priests of Israel. If this is your first Sunday here, let me just say that so far we have seen in Malachi that the people of Israel are in a great state of apathy, passionless worship. And that has affected them in some very serious ways. And Malachi thus far is God putting Israel on trial. It begins with Israel blaming God and questioning God. And then God reverses the tables and tells them why they are in the state they are in. He starts with their love for God not being what it ought to be. He then goes to the priests and questions their faithfulness to uphold him and make him grand before all the people. And that's what we saw last week. That God told the priests that he has now rejected them. And using such severe language as we saw last week in Malachi chapter 2. Where he's going to take the dung of their offerings and smear it on their faces. The priests are rejected. But we gloried in that passage, didn't we? We saw how that passage pointed us to a greater reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How Jesus, our great high priest, was rejected and cursed on our behalf. And he had the dung of our sins smeared on him. We gloried in that passage and grateful that we have a high priest as his name is Jesus to fully obey God and do what we cannot. Amen. Amen. Well, now Malachi shifts the focus from the priest to the people of Israel once again. And he says here in verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Malachi isn't asking here the question because he doesn't know the answer. This is a rhetorical question. That's when you ask a question and you already know the answer. His point here is to put the emphasis on who they are. Who do we belong to? Don't we have all the same father? 
And whether that's referring back to Abraham or to Jacob, we're not sure. But it definitely results, it points us to God. They all belong to God. God created them. And they're the Jewish people come from Abraham and through Jacob. Who do we belong to? And if that is true, don't we belong to one another? And the answer, of course, is yes. Of course, we have the same Father. Of course, we have the same God who's made us. And here's the question. Why then, Malachi asked them, are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The passage now shifts from their lack of faithfulness to God to their lack of faithfulness to one another. By not being faithful to one another, Malachi says that they have broken the covenant of God. And the word here for being faithless or is acting treacherously with one another. It's not keeping their word. That's what it means to be faithless. You are counted on to do something and you go back on your word. You can't be trusted. And so they're making promises to one another and they're not upholding these promises. They're not treating one another well. And what we've seen already in Malachi is that they've already failed to love the Lord, their God. But what we're going to see, and probably what you might see in your own life, is that what naturally happens is when we fail to love the Lord as we ought to, it will inevitably lead to us failing to love one another the way we ought to. And it's true the other way around. When you fail to love other people to reflection on how you love the Lord, those two go hand in hand. You can't say that you love God and not love your brothers. This is what's going on here. He shifts from, yeah, we already know that you don't love God because of the way you've acted. But now, look at how you're treating one another. Shouldn't be a surprise that you are faithless to one another. Matter of fact, the Apostle John says the same thing in his first epistle. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so what we see is that apathy, this is the main theme of this book here, doesn't just affect our vertical relationship, which is with God, between me and God, up and down. Apathy also affects our horizontal relationships, and that is with other people. And the two are connected. Love for God flows from a love for other people. Matter of fact, this is reflected in even in our church logo, if you didn't know. Our church logo is a cross with two arrows, one pointing to the north and another one pointing to the west, reflecting our name, Northwest Baptist Church. But even those two arrows reflects our responsibility up towards God and out towards others. Apathy affects everything. And faithlessness, here's the new accusation from God to these people. They have not been faithful to one another. And in doing so, they have profaned the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of 
our fathers, Malachi says. Of course, what he's referring to here is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant or the law of God. God has given Israel a law. If you're going to be my people, you're going to do what I say. You're going to be a people called after my name. You're going to have certain expectations to live up to. And here they are. And the law of God is the guide for Israel to know God and to know how to live and to ultimately know that they can't obey God on their own, so they need a Savior. And let's just take the Ten Commandments as, as an example. There are 613 commandments. We're not going to take all 613 this morning. Let's just take ten for an example, okay? The Ten Commandments are on two tablets. Think of Moses. He comes down from the mountain with two Tables, two tablets. The first tablet holds the first four commandments. What are the first four commandments about? About our relationship with God. Worship God alone. Do not have graven images. Number two, don't take God's name in vain. Number three, and honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first table of the law handles with our vertical relationships to God. The second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10 deal with one another. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. And do not covet. We see these examples of vertical and horizontal relationships in the law of God. This is why Malachi says you have profaned the covenant. What has God expected you to do? To love God and to love other people people. This is why the Lord Jesus, when they questioned him in Matthew 22, they said, which is the first and the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Well, he gave them a summary of the law. And what did Jesus say? In verse 37 of Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there you go. Vertical, horizontal. And here, Israel was failing at both. They had already committed idolatry. They had forsaken the rules and commands of the Lord. But now, the new accusation is they're not being faithful to one another. They're not loving their neighbor as themselves. And you can guarantee it, and maybe you've seen it, and you can testify it into your own heart. A heart that grows cold towards God will soon show itself in growing cold towards others. God has expectations on how we are to love one another, treat one another, care for one another. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why does God care so much about how we treat one another? And the answer is very simple. Because people whom we are to love are made in the image of God. So in reality, how you treat other people is a reflection on how you treat God. To malign, to lie, to kill, to steal, to covet, to disrespect, or take someone else's spouse that is not yours is a sin against God. Even though you sinned against that person, that person is made in the image of God. And you have violated his rules for loving other people well. This is where they are. So we see this connection of horizontal and vertical relationships. And know that this is the new accusation here. 
Why are they grow, have they grown cold towards others? Well, it's because their heart has already grown cold towards God. So if you don't see yourself as a loving person, a friendly person, a caring person, we have to ask ourselves, well, how's our vertical relationship with the Lord? Because our love for other people flows from this. Flows from this. And so let's get into the specifics here. What exactly have they done to not be faithful to one another? Look at verse 11 of Malachi 2. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So how have they acted faithless? The answer is this. They have profaned, meaning they desecrated, They despise the sanctuary of the Lord, which is what? The temple. How did they do this? By marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, when people worshipped idols, the other peoples in the land around Israel, they were known as the children of that god, lowercase g. Right? So, Baal and all these other false gods in Israel that existed at that time, Israel counted those people the children of that God, lowercase g again. So what's happening here, and this has been happening a long time in Israel at this point, is that God had given them a command. When they left Egypt, God says, I'm bringing you to the promised land. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to drive all those people out. Do not marry them. Do not accept them. Do not become them. Because if you do, your hearts will be swayed away. And that's exactly what happened again and again and again. God says, do not marry the people there. You have to marry other people who are Jewish He actually commanded that they do not marry other people. And what did they do? They intermarried with the other people of the land. Now, why is this such a command from God, right? Is God against interracial marriage? Of course not. God was not against this because they were from different places or had different colors of skin. God was against it for interfaith purposes, not because of interracial purposes. God knew that if they married the people of the land, they would adopt the idols, the lowercase g gods of those peoples. And essentially, if you wanted to summarize the Old Testament and the way the Israel went, that's the story. Every time Israel has gone wrong, it begins with what? Marrying the people of the land And adopting their gods. This is what happened to King Solomon. King Solomon with his 1,000 women. 1,000 women kept marrying women. Of course he had concubines in there too. What did he do? He brought them into his kingdom. And whatever god they worshipped was a new god to worship in the country. 
And this is why when Solomon died, God split them in half, north and south, but they both committed this idolatry. Then later on, after that, or before that actually, in the book of Judges, chapter 3, we're told that they did this too. God said, don't marry the people of the land. Well, guess what? Look what they did. Judges chapter 3. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods, lowercase g. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. This is what happened in the book of Judges. This is what happened in the days of the kingdom of of, uh, Solomon. And that's why God sends King Nebuchadnezzar to judge them. They're taken away as slaves. Jerusalem is destroyed. Now we get to Malachi and they go back to the land. 100 years later after being back in the land. And what do they continue to do? Marry the other people of the land. And adopt their gods. And so what's happening here? As Malachi is saying that you have been faithless. You've committed an abomination. Why? Because you keep doing what God has said not to do. God knows that your hearts are always swayed by these people. And that you're going to take their gods and make them your gods. And then you're bringing that into the temple. And what they did was mix the different religions together. They mixed the different religions together and profaned. They polluted the temple. They polluted the worship of God. And what were some of these things that Israel adopted from the women they married and the different peoples of the Canaanites there? Well, one of the most famous things was child sacrifice. To the name of a false god named Molech. To worship the false god of Molech, you would bring your children and put them in the fire and burn them alive so that Molech would bless your harvest. This is what the nation of Israel was doing. They worshiped the god of Molech among other gods, killing their children. The worship of Molech is still happening today. Today, we just call it abortion in the name of supposed health care. They also adopted the false gods and worshiped with sexual overtones, temple prostitution, incest was rampant. Where did they get these ideas from? From the people of the land. So they show up. To worship in the name of a false god, and they go to offer the sacrifices in the temple to worship the God of Israel. You think God is happy? You've committed an abomination, O Judah. You've been faithless to one another. You've profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. This principle still applies today. We see commands in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, that encourage us for very specific reasons that Christians ought to marry other Christians for the same exact reason. 
Just as God didn't want false worship mixed in his temple in the Old Testament, he doesn't want it today. Now, what is the temple of God today? Because there's no building in Jerusalem that stands today as the temple of God. We're told in the New Testament that the temple of God is who? Believers. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I've told my children now as they're getting older and beginning to have special dating relationships. The first question they tell me when when I ask them, hey, they're interested in someone. The first question I ask them is, do they know the Lord? And they know that. They know that that's that's the way we have raised them because that's what the scripture has said. Now, some, some of you may be married to an unbeliever, and that's fine. You can't go back and change that now. Love them, pray for them, share Christ with them. Paul has a lot to say about that too, about people who are married to unbelievers because they become Christians after the fact. However, if you are looking for a spouse, make sure that the person your heart is pursuing is one who knows Christ. And trust me, after 23 years of being a pastor and doing lots and lots of marriage counseling, there's a lot of marital problems that ensue because of different worldviews, religions, that cause very real consequences. When a couple asks me to do a wedding, I give them a questionnaire to fill out so that I could weed out a lot of these requests, especially from in, the, in the community. And the first question I want to know about them is, do they both know Christ? Because I will not do a wedding for a believer who wants to marry an unbeliever. It goes against what the scripture says. And sometimes the Lord works miracles and brings the unbelieving partner to faith, but that is the exception, not the rule. And I know a couple of your testimonies are like that too. The exception, not the rule. Why has God given us such laws and rules? To protect us. To protect us. He knows what is right and what's best. These laws are not to keep us from having a good time. And he knows what was good for his people, Israel. And they failed. And the consequences they brought upon themselves were because of their disobedience. They had not been faithful to that, to the Lord, by marrying and adopting the gods of a foreign people. Verse 12, Malachi isn't messing around. Unlike the priests who took the glory of God, who were not taking the glory of God seriously, This is what Malachi says about those men who would marry those women and bring their gods into worship. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The word cut off literally means excluded, dead, removed. Malachi was wanting the judgment of God to fall upon them because their worship, false worship in the temple, was polluting the whole nation and creating this apathy. See, when you fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it will lead to apathy. And how do you not do that? You bring sin into the picture and mix it in, and your worship is polluted. 
But he's not done. Look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. These people have the audacity to be mad at God for not accepting their polluted worship. They come with their groaning and their tears and their feel sorry for me attitude. And why, Lord? Why are you doing this to us? Remember, the Lord has already rejected the priests last week, and now he's proclaiming judgment on those who would come and do the same to the people of Israel and rejecting their offerings, rejecting their sacrifices when they come to the temple because they are faithless. They're coming with this feel-sorry attitude. But this is what apathy does. First, it makes you question God's love. Second, it makes you take God's grace for granted. And thirdly, it makes you think you deserve better. Come on, God, I'm bringing you this. Can't you just be happy with what I brought you? Who cares about all the other stuff I haven't repented from? But what about this, God? Please, God, please. And this is what they're doing. Why aren't you blessing us, God? God says that you've polluted it. Verse 14, and they question God. Why won't you accept our offerings, God? But you say, why does he not accept it? See, they question God. They don't understand They're so deceived into thinking that what they're doing is okay. But it goes further than that. Not only were they marrying the daughters of a foreign god. Look at verse 14. Why does he not accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. To whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God lays another charge here. Not only are they intermarrying people with false gods and adopting them into their worship. And therefore you have not been faithful to me. But you've also not been faithful to your wives. Why? Because when a pretty little Canaanite woman came along. They decided to divorce their wife for the sake of this new woman. They have abandoned their marital vows and their marital covenant when these Canaanite women came along. And they said, see you later. The next new thing is in town. And God says, and you want me to bless your offering? You want me to accept? You want me to be faithful to you when you can't even be faithful to your wife? Not only have you polluted your worship with the affairs of a foreign god, but now you have disposed of your wife as yesterday's lunch and pursued someone else. Even though the wife of your youth was yours by covenant and that I was a witness The Lord was a witness between you and your wife. This is why God will not accept their worship. They have not only broken the covenant of God, but they were also guilty of breaking their marital covenant. They would do very well with what the Senate passed this week, the Disrespect to Marriage Act. It's exactly what that is. 
You see, that's what a marriage is. A marriage is a covenant, not a contract. What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Well, in a contract, what is a contract? A contract is you do your part and I'll do mine. And as long as you do your part, I'll do mine. And you scratch my back and I scratch yours. If you ever had a membership at a gym in January after New Year's, because you feel guilty about your diet and your lifestyle, $10 a month. Most of these gyms are $10 a month. Oh, I can do $10 a month, low risk, no commitment. I show up when I want. As long as they got the machines ready and they're good to go, that's fine. But as soon as they, the machine fails or as soon as I stop showing up to the gym, even though it's just $10 a month, it's still $10 a month that I'm not using, yeah, you know what, it's just a contract. What does it really affect me? They really didn't give me the benefit of losing weight, even though I didn't show up or use machines. <clears throat> so I'm just going to break the contract, which is just month to month anyway, and I'll walk away. No strings attached. And that's why the divorce rate is so high in our country. Because marriage has become a contract. You do your part, I'll do mine. But what is a covenant? A covenant is not, I'm waiting for you to give your 50% so I can give my 50%. A covenant is whether you do your part or not, I have promised to do my part and I will do it. That's what a covenant is. The word covenant literally means to cut. This is why God gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham and to Israel. So they will remember that the cutting of their flesh is God's faithful promise to do his part in, prom in blessing them as a nation and sending a Messiah to be his people. And God was witness to this covenant of their marital covenant with one another. When I unite a man and a woman together in a wedding ceremony, I... They give vows. They exchange vows with one another. Will you love her, comfort her, honor her, keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keep yourself only for your wife as long as you both shall live? Nowhere in there does it say if she does her part. You're standing before God saying, will you do yours whether she does hers or not? That's what a covenant is. Lori and I had friends in Pennsylvania very tragic story. Good friends of ours. They were in an accident, head-on collision. The wife was driving. She was hit head-on by a drunk driver. He got banged up, was okay. She became a quadriplegic. Meaning she had no use of her limbs. What she was before, she could no longer be. She couldn't cook or clean or have sexual intimacy or go to places where they used to go or go for walks or she couldn't do anything for him because she needed everyone to take care of her as a quadriplegic. Well, 
after a couple years, that grew old for him. And he left her for another woman because she no longer could be the person who he married. But you see, what does in sickness and in health mean to you? This is what a covenant is. I'm just not going to get rid of you when the next little pretty thing comes along. No, before God is my witness, this is what God is saying to them. I was witness to the wife of your youth when you made that covenant. And now that all these little pretty women are coming in, you're running after them and disposing of her like yesterday's news. And you want me to bless you? Hmm. God has made a covenant with us my friends. It's called the new covenant. And a covenant is always a cutting. What did God cut to make the new covenant? He cut the body and flesh of his own son to remind us whether you do your part or not. By the way, you can't do your part. I will do mine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? I'll do my part. Because you can't do yours. This is why the church is called the bride of Christ. He came from heaven and sought her. Purchased her to be his own. As we sang earlier this morning. And you better be glad. That God doesn't consider our relationship with him a contract. Because if our relationship with God were a contract. Then friends Everyone goes to hell. But because God has made a covenant to do his part, whether we do ours, is something to rejoice in. Therefore, what is marriage? Marriage in the Bible is a picture of our relationship with God. Always. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of of the spirit and their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your, the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as the bride of God. God was the husband. Song of Solomon is the passionate story of God's pursuit of his people. In the New Testament, God's people, the church, are referred to as the bride of Christ. Jesus is the husband. We are the bride. If Jesus treated the church the way some men treat their wives, we'd all go to hell. This is, should greatly humble us, men. Because whether you know it or not, the way we act as husbands preaches the gospel to the world. What kind of gospel are you preaching? A false gospel or the true gospel? When you break your marriage covenant, you are separating what God has made as one. That's what he says here. The Lord made them one. And he's given them a portion of his spirit You're fracturing the spirit by your faithlessness. 
Now, why does God want this? He wants godly offspring from the nation of Israel. But yet, instead of godly offspring, what do we have? We have the daughters of a foreign god who are going to raise their children as what? Idolaters. And God does not get his godly offspring here in Israel, which is why he has rejected them, why he has rejected their worship, rejected their priests. This is a heavy passage. And verse 16 is very interesting. Some translations, and it's not very clear in the Hebrew texts. This is why different translations translate it differently. Some translation says that God says he hates divorce, which is true. And then ESV, for example, and some other translations says that the man who doesn't love his wife or the man who hates his wife divorces her. Whether you translate it one way or another, they're both true. If you leave your wife for another woman, you hate her, plain and simple. Why? Because how you treat her is a reflection of how you think of God. How you treat your wife is a reflection of what you think about God. And by the way, the same goes for the women too. Right? We must have faithful wives as well. We must have faithful husbands. How you treat your wife is a reflection of what you think about God. Maybe you're not being the husband you are to, you need to be today because your relationship with God is not what it is. What do we say in the beginning? Your vertical relationships affect your horizontal ones. Get your heart right with God and then you'll love your wife as you ought to. Now, of course, there are biblical reasons for divorce as we see in the New Testament. One most famous being marital unfaithfulness being the most common. But even then, it's not always God's answer. God's answer is not divorce, but reconciliation and faithfulness towards one another. Those things were given as an exception, not the rule. Our marriages should preach the gospel because they're a reflection of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The way we have... Our marriages is a message, a sermon to the world. Will we have marriages that reflect the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Will we have husbands that model and aspire to reflect their love for their wives in sacrificial ways as Christ has loved us sacrificially? 
Or are we going to preach a gospel to the world that God gives up on us just like our spouses give up on one another? How you live your life matters. And I know in this room there are a myriad of different life experiences. Perhaps you have been unfaithful to your spouse at some point in your marriage. Repent, get forgiveness, and move on. This is what the gospel is all about. Forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation. Don't beat yourself up for past mistakes. Live and be the kind of spouse and husband and wife now who you ought to be. Don't let your past keep you down. Get that right with God and move on. No matter what you have done, there's hope in Christ. There's hope in the gospel. And no, not a single one of us can be a perfect husband or a perfect wife. This is why we must continually, each, uh, uh, each of us in these relationships, must run to the gospel to be faithful to him and seek his heart and ask God to help us where we fall and help us where we stumble and to have our lives magnified by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. See, because what Israel was doing, remember Israel's supposed to be a kingdom of priests of the world. They're supposed to show the world who God is. And so what is God saying here? You're telling the world that I give up on you because I'm your husband. You're my wife, God says to them. And how your marriages in the country are a reflection of our relationship. So what are you doing? You are just disposing of your wife. Have I ever done that to you? I have every reason to. But I've made a promise. I intend to keep it. That's what God, that's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness isn't being perfect. Faithfulness is picking each other up, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, and moving on, moving on. Sometimes that's not always possible, and there is an exception for that, and each couple has to reconcile that in their hearts before the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must be faithful to one another. So no matter who you are or where have you been, know this. You may not be the perfect husband, but we have one who is, and his name is Jesus. And he welcomes us all through our failings, our faults, our stupid decisions that we have made, right? We've all made dumb decisions. And even though you've never, men, even though you've never cheated on your wife, Jesus says to lust after another woman in your heart, it's the same thing. We've all been faithless. Let us run to Christ for forgiveness. Let us have healthy marriages in our church. Marriages that reflect the gospel, not the world. Marriages that reflect the truth of how God treats us. So may you repent where you need to repent. May you be encouraged where you need to be encouraged. And let us all strive forward to have the perfect relationship we can with our Savior because he loves us in spite of us and let that flow and how we treat one another. Vertical relationships always affect horizontal. Let's pray.
Oh God, thank you for your word. Another heavy passage to consider. One with many modern applications. Father, we pray that we are being faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful to our spouses. Help these marriages reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ and not a false gospel of the world. Bless our marriages. Make them stronger. Each marriage has scars and pains and wounds. Some are very hurtful, very painful. But keep us faithful. Grant repentance, grant forgiveness, grant reconciliation. No matter what we've done, no matter where we failed, no matter how we have messed up, there's hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Whether we're on our first marriage or second marriage or third marriage or more, keep us in tune with you. And let us strive to keep our current relationships and make them all they can be for the glory of God and learn from our past. No one's perfect in here, Lord. We've all messed up. Help us to walk as you have called us to walk in obedience, but with much grace because we need you. We need you, Lord, more than ever, especially in our relationships. I pray for those who are seeking spouses, for those who are seeking or who are in relationships. Keep their hearts centered on your word. Encourage believers to marry another believer for the sake of their children and household and worldviews and Lord, there's much to be said about that. But Lord, do your work through your word as it's been taught. Continue to refine us and sanctify us to the praise of your glorious name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning and sing a closing hymn. Thank you so much for being here this morning. God bless you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd love to talk with you in the Welcome Center after the service concludes. Come see me. If you need prayer or have any questions, come see me as well. The ladies will be out in the Welcome Center. If you need tickets or need to return tickets for the Christmas program, please take care of that. We need your help if you're not going to use one. Let's get as many people here as possible. God bless you. Let's sing.